Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all today. I am looking forward to uh, next Sunday as well, Easter Sunday, and I just want to echo the earlier announcement that we have a brunch at 9.30 before our service at 10.30, and, uh, and so by all means, join us for that, and I too would encourage you to thank and pray about someone who you may uh, invite to join as well. I want to encourage you also to take your Bible now and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're going to finish chapter 19 this morning. Just two chapters remain. It's been a long and good journey through the Gospel of John. As we gather on this Palm Sunday... We remember why it's so named. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on the eventful Sunday long ago, He entered to a chorus of praise. Hosanna in the highest, they sang. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the people shouted. Laying their cloaks down before him, they very much gave him the red carpet treatment, waving palm branches in homage. They treated him like a king. It was quite a show, one that stirred excitement and left all in wonderment. Who but Jesus could have known what was soon to follow? By week's end, He would meet His end. In a matter of mere days, the adoring crowd would give way to a rugged cross. It was a classic case of, that was then, this is now. For the past many weeks, we've been considering the cross, what led to it, and happened on it, and what results from it. Following John's pace set in his gospel, we've taken our time to revisit the final hours of Christ's life on earth. We've moved from the upper room where He gathered with His disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where He was betrayed and arrested, to the house of the high priest where He was condemned by the Jews, to the headquarters of Pontius Pilate where He was scourged and sentenced to death, We've made our way to Golgotha itself, to the cross of Christ, learning along the way that all was unfolding in perfect accord with the goodness of God and His many good promises to redeem and rescue. You know, one cannot consider the cross, not really, without considering one's relation to Christ. And so at this point in John's narrative, two men are introduced into the scene. One whom we have never met, and the other we've seen only infrequently. It's certainly not to be overlooked how they come to the fore at this particular moment, just, be, just after the death of Jesus. I think it reveals something about the nature of discipleship and speaks to our hearts as followers of Christ. It refers to faith in Christ and to the growing of our faith over time. 
As many can attest, even many here in this room today, as many can attest, such growth often occurs when we least expect it and at times we might otherwise avoid. For even at the burial of Jesus, we find necessary strength to follow Jesus. So I want to read this with you. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you again for even the common and daily grace we share this morning. The gift of life itself. Thank you for the unique and special grace we share this morning. Namely, in that we come together once again as a body of believers a fellowship of faith, men and women, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to declare our praise of the Lord, and even now to consider the, the Lord in, as He is presented in the Word of God. We'd ask that you would teach us from your Word this morning. We thank you for this journey through John's Gospel. And we thank you specifically for the many people we've met along the way who provide helpful examples. We see in these people who encounter Jesus, who are introduced into the scene, we see that the human condition has not changed, that people today are very much like people then. And so we find in their example grace from your hand, strength, and even the encouragement to look again, to look close, to lean in and consider Jesus. Would you help us to do that today? Would you enable us to see Him and Consider our relation to Him and entrust ourselves to Him and follow Him and glory in Him and serve Him and stand for Him and make our allegiance 
to him known to the watching world. We ask this in his name. Amen. There are three key people mentioned in this passage, each pointing in some way to the nature of discipleship, specifically to the move from a private faith to one much more public, a move from secrecy to the Savior Himself. And I want to consider each of the three persons presented here and then offer three personal applications concerning our own progression as disciples of Jesus. Well, there is the man, Joseph, from the town of Arimathea, a Judean city located north of Jerusalem and to the west in the hill country of Ephraim. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, we're told, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Remember that Jewish opposition toward Jesus had grown throughout his public ministry. The Jewish authorities and religious leaders, by and large, took great offense to Jesus and his methods and his message concerning the kingdom of God, and specifically to his claim to be the eternal Son of God, who was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah sent from God, wanting to discourage and deter people from following Jesus the Jews had made it very clear that anyone who believed in Jesus would be opposed by them and essentially ostracized from the Jewish community. Now, the fear of such things was very real and very effective. You recall even from chapter 7 how no one, we're told, spoke openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Again, in chapter 9, When questioned by the authorities, the parents of the blind man who was healed by Jesus hesitated to say anything, we're told, because they feared the Jews. And yet again, in chapter 12, we're told that many of the authorities themselves believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So there were people back in the day, as there are in our day, who were drawn to Christ and even believed in Christ on some level, but kept their beliefs mostly to themselves because they feared what others might think or say or do. Joseph of Arimathea was one of these, apparently. If you've ever felt that you don't fit in, that you're swimming upstream, that you're politically incorrect, you can relate with Joseph. If you hesitate to confess your faith in Jesus when at school or at work, or with the neighbors on your street. You can relate. If you hesitate to share your faith through evangelism, you can relate. If you resist posting your biblical beliefs on Facebook or other social media outlets, you can relate. I suspect all of us 
have kept our Christianity secret at times for fear of what others might say or do. I can relate with Joseph of Arimathea, and you can too. But what John emphasizes here is that something changed in Joseph. Previously stunted by his fears, Joseph now went public with his faith. So public, in fact, that he asked Pilate for permission to take and bury the body of Jesus, which obviously would not have gone gone unnoticed by the Jews. The second man to enter the scene is Nicodemus. You know, we first met Nicodemus back in chapter 3 when he went to Jesus secretly by night. Like Joseph, Nicodemus was a religious man, a Pharisee, as well as a notable leader and ruler of the Jews. He was one of the 70 leading men who comprised the Jewish council, what's called the Sanhedrin. And in that first encounter, Nicodemus affirmed Jesus as a teacher and worker of miracles, he agreed that God was with Jesus in powerful ways and even recognized how Jesus had come from God. And he was right in believing these things, but he had not yet been born again, which became the topic of their conversation that evening. Jesus walked him through the necessity of new and spiritual birth being born by the Spirit of God, and thus becoming a true child of God. The clear takeaway from that initial encounter, hear this, is that you may know many facts about Jesus and even recognize in Jesus something unique and special, but knowledge of the facts or recognition of something special, mere recognition of something special, does not make you a Christian. You must be born again, which implies newness of life and a whole new approach to life. We run into Nicodemus again in chapter 7, amidst the growing tide of opposition against the Lord. It was Nicodemus, remember, who stepped forward to challenge the other members of the council saying instead of serving as judge and jury, he urged the council to give Jesus a personal hearing and to learn from Jesus directly a rational idea, actually, that was immediately shut down by the irrational majority. Now Nicodemus appears again. Here at the end of chapter 19, to team with Joseph in caring for Jesus. He's not called a disciple as Joseph is, but clearly he held Jesus in high esteem. Clearly he was drawn to Jesus in some way. And I just have to wonder, it's total speculation, could it be that John is showing how Nicodemus had either come to faith or is coming to faith in Christ. 
from his initial encounter with Jesus to his defense of Jesus to his care for Jesus now, clearly Nicodemus is progressing. You know, some come to faith in a singular instance. Maybe through a significant event like summer camp or a church conference or a crusade at which a decision is made right then and there. Or maybe through a terrible crisis that brings terrible loss, but somehow that loss brings perspective and reveals the kindness of God in ways that went previously unnoticed and a decision to yield one's life to Christ is made right then and there. Some come to Christ in a singular instance, but others do so only after a long string of instances. Others, like myself, learn about Jesus piece by piece, bit by bit, occasion by occasion, person by person, until we are eventually born again by the Spirit of God. If that's your story, perhaps Nicodemus was on a similar path, progressing in faith one instance at a time. And maybe that's you even today. Could it be that God is calling you, even this morning, to trust Jesus even more than you had previously? To trust Jesus today even more than you may have yesterday? So here was Nicodemus bringing large quantities of spices to prepare Jesus for burial together with Joseph, he took the body and bound it with linen cloths, as was the custom of the day. The third person mentioned here is not new to us at all. It's Jesus. And here we learn what became of Jesus immediately after his death. Now in the place where, there, where he was crucified, there was a garden, verse 41. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We learn from Mark's account that when Joseph went to Pilate to request the body, Pilate first checked with the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion to verify that Jesus was, in fact, dead. So everyone present at the crucifixion saw Jesus die. Those who hated Him, those neutral toward Him, and those who loved Him. No one at the time, this is important, no one at the time denied it, and Pilate himself verified it. So the notion purported by some that Jesus merely swooned on the cross only to come to in the tomb is ridiculous. His dead body was removed from the cross, prepared for burial, and placed in a tomb, a new tomb that belonged to Joseph, according to Matthew's account, in which no one had ever been laid. Burial is the expected next step when someone dies. 
Everyone present confirmed his death and everyone expected him to remain dead. Christ's burial is important because if Jesus had not died, then atonement for sin was not made. Important because if Jesus was not dead and buried, then he could not rise from the dead to assure new and everlasting life. And so by his record of exactly what happened, John is stressing that Jesus was dead. Essentially saying, listen to me. John was there, of course. I'm telling you, the man was dead. They poked him with a spear. No life. The centurion, Pilate asked, the centurion verified it. No life. Dead. And buried. John is stressing that Jesus had died while also noting how others responded to Jesus because he died. What are we to make of these two men and their response to Jesus at this time? You know, in some of my reading this week, some, some want to disparage them for their secrecy. faulting them for not being more forward with their faith sooner. But I think it's better and even more accurate to see them as examples of a growing trust in the Lord. Of gradually learning how to follow Christ. We need such examples, don't we? And so what might we learn from them regarding our own discipleship? I have three suggestions. Number one, let the truth of Christ overcome your fear of man. Let the truth of Christ overcome your fear of man. You know, the reasons we tend to keep our faith secret and private are usually fear-based, right? We fear ridicule, rejection, misunderstanding. We fear the loss of status in the eyes of others, the loss of our platform, We fear abandonment and isolation because we want acceptance. We do. Because we want acceptance and we have a need for relationship, we fear losing it and thus find it much easier to keep quiet and just blend in. Such fears, however, are largely based on untruths, untruths. We fear what others think because we think their opinions matter most. And because we think their opinions matter most, we assume they have the power to make or break us. 
Because we assume they have the power to make or break us, we curb and curtail our devotion to Christ. But this is faulty thinking from the start because our lives are not in their hands, but God's ultimately. And our identity lies secure in the person and work of Jesus. We are immensely loved by God and forever secure in Christ. And we should view our every circumstance and relationship through the lens of this truth. Still, still, though, it, though we may not like it and as comfortable as it may be, we must understand, we must understand that the way of Christ runs counter to the way of the world, which means that our allegiance to Jesus does come with cost. It will cost us social capital at times. It will cost, it will, it will cost uh, the loss of respect in the eyes of some. It may even cost a loss of relationship. But one essential life lesson we must all learn as disciples of Christ, hear this, is that you cannot be everything to everyone in every way and you aren't intended to. gathered to pray this morning and Frank shared that his heart's burdened for our brothers and sisters in Egypt this morning. Who gathered on Palm Sunday for them. Palm Sunday only to find their churches bombed. And What I understand, I don't know all of this for sure, but what I understand, 30-something people thus far have lost their lives. And apparently, this is not uncommon on Palm Sunday. And so you put yourself in the mind of those believers who woke up this morning, as in our case, woke up to go to church on Palm Sunday knowing, knowing that there's a very real possibility they may not come home. We must understand That the way of Christ runs counter to the way of the world. And following Jesus does come at a cost. But we must also remember 
that the gain of following Jesus far outweighs whatever losses you may incur. How else can you explain the passionate commitment that drove these earliest disciples, that drives our, uh, our, our Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt? How else can you explain that? How else can you explain the commitment to make disciples that has been passed from one generation to the next? Even when facing death itself, Christian men and women from all ages and all walks of life have counted the cost. They've sat down and essentially have counted the cost of following Jesus and have concluded that they are blessed. And want to know and follow him even more. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul's testimony in Galatians chapter 1. And I want you to ask yourself quietly. Just ask yourself how you would answer his questions. Honestly. Am I now seeking the approval of man, he asks, or of God? Am I trying to please man, he asks. Before concluding, if I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. Now Paul drives to the crux of the matter by exposing the hidden motives of the heart, basically saying that we can be either God-pleasers or man-pleasers, but not both. If I were still trying to please man, he writes, I would not be a servant of Christ. Apparently, there was a time in Paul's life when he was a man pleaser. And yet, thankfully, he came to see the futility of it. The more he grew in the grace of God, the more he found his security and identity in Christ, not the crowd. And like Paul, there was a time when Joseph and Nicodemus preferred the crowd over Christ. Now, however, they step out from the crowd in service of Christ, embracing the fact that, that though the power of the world in opposition to truth is real, the power of truth in opposition to the world is greater by far. So let the truth of Christ erect its throne within your heart and overcome your fear of man. Number two. Find courage at the cross. Find courage at the cross. It took courage. It took courage to ask for the body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. Of all times, when opposition against Jesus was at its peak, and when all hope in Jesus appeared lost, these men 
courageously displayed their affection for Christ. Previously, they were private and more secretive, but now, in what could easily be construed as defying their fellow members of the council, they drew upon newfound courage that changed everything. And that which triggered the change was the cross of Christ. The cross and all that transpired on the cross emboldened these men. You know, from our place and perspective, we see in Christ's death freedom from sin and forgiveness from God. We see in the full revelation of God's Word that in Christ's death, full atonement was made, that God Himself has paid the full price of our redemption. We can read the Old and New Testament together to see how one interprets the other and how the Old Covenant gives way to the New, but they didn't have these advantages. They didn't know all we know, and what little they did know was only in its infancy. So what, what did they draw upon in the death of Christ to find such courage? What was it in those moments that caused their legs to move as they stepped out from the crowd? I think it was the undeniable power and presence of God. I think like the centurion, they realize that Jesus is truly the Son of God. I think they observed in His death the vast love of God. I think they witnessed in Christ that which marked His life and ministry all along. Remember from the moment of His birth, remember that Jesus was God with us. And now, in the moments of His death, they saw this in ways never before imagined. To see the Son of God endure the cross and die as He did assured them of God's presence and power. I want to say that to know that Jesus died to atone for your sins is unbelievably great news. But in addition to this, to know that He died to identify with you, to be for you and with you in this way is very powerful. And very personal. So if you ever question whether God is for you or with you, find courage in the cross. And then, third and finally, look for and lay hold of the kingdom of God. Look for and lay hold of the kingdom of God. 
When reading the parallel accounts on the burial of Jesus, I'm struck by a statement made by both Mark and Luke when describing Joseph of Arimathea. In that they each mention how he was looking for the kingdom of God. I find that very telling. Joseph was on the look for sightings of another kingdom. One not of this world. He was on the look. He was on the watch for sightings of another kingdom. And in the death of Christ, he saw it. And in seeing the kingdom of God in Christ, he seized the God-given opportunity to care for Christ and thus stand for Christ. This was a defining moment for Joseph and for Nicodemus also. Certain moments are just that. Like Esther, when she approached the king for such a time as this, or Elijah, when he battled the prophets of Baal, or Peter, when he stood at Pentecost to boldly preach Christ before the very same people who killed Christ. But unlike what we may assume, such moments aren't reserved for monumental occasions only. More often they surface within the everydayness of life. Do you think Joseph woke up that Friday morning expecting to bury Jesus later that day? Just the everydayness. You know, for me, as I've shared with you before, one such moment came in a college communications class I took 20-plus years ago. Assigned to deliver a persuasive speech, I stood before 40 of my peers and chose to speak on Christ as Lord and urged them to place their faith in Him. It was a line-in-the-sand moment for me turning point for me. Another example, I laugh because it's so simple, but it's so meaningful. Another example was the year I decided to place a wooden crash in our front yard at Christmas. While most of our neighbors were decorating with Santa or Frosty, or another holiday favorite, Sally and I knew that this was an opportunity to let our faith in Jesus be known. And little did we know, little did we know at the time that our neighbors would actually vote our house most inspirational (laughs) that year. point is that they were watching. They noticed such moments occur in the routine stuff of life, like attending class and decorating for Christmas. I could easily, believe me, I could easily share the many 
and far more numerous occasions when I've let similar opportunities fall by the wayside. But I've noticed this about myself that I believe applies to us all. When I'm fixated on earthly things, I lose sight of the heavenly kingdom. When I'm fixated on earthly things, I tend to miss the heavenly kingdom. But whenever I look for kingdom sightings, I usually find them in abundance. If we look for the kingdom of God each day, as we simply go about our day, I believe we'll find it. I believe it breaks through as we seize the divinely appointed moments God provides, the daily moments from the hand of providence by which heaven touches earth. So look for, look for, look for and lay hold of the kingdom of God. Who knows what became of these two men? Their names never appear again in the biblical record. But it should not be lost on us that the final view we have of them, the, 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 the last glimpse we have of them pictures a genuine love for Jesus. Allowing the truth of Christ to overcome their fear of man, they took courage in the cross. Looking for the kingdom of God, they found it and laid hold of it. In Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they provide a much needed example of growing trust in the Lord, growth that often occurs when we least expect it and at times we might otherwise avoid. For even at the burial of Jesus, we find necessary strength to follow Jesus. So, like Joseph and like Nicodemus and And like their relation to Christ, may God strengthen our hearts as disciples of Christ. Yes? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. Please, God, will you help us to be people of truth? Let truth reign in our lives. Let it erect its throne in our hearts. We are, all of us on some level, each and every one of us on some level, we fear man. We do. And we pray that our confidence in the truth of Christ would bit by bit erode and tear down our fear of man, that we would move forward in the strength of Christ, help us to find courage in the cross. Help us to see at the cross 
not only the atonement for sins, but also the presence and power of God. We need both. We need this assurance that our sins are atoned, and we need the assurance that you are for us and with us. And give us eyes, God, that would look for your kingdom and give us hands that would grab a hold of it even as we grab on to Jesus. Do these things, we pray, for our growth as disciples and to the glory of Christ himself. Amen.